You are entering the Freedom Hut. The media blames Trump for someone mishearing the president. We have updates on the negotiations to get a Senate bill, a congressional rescue package passed. And then what is the latest on New York's attempts to get ahead of the massive spike in COVID-19 cases? That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, great here, great America. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. In the coming weeks, in fact, we want to make it even better than it was before. And we're doing things to help in that regard. America will again and soon be open for business. Uh, Very soon. A lot sooner than uh, three or four months that somebody was suggesting. A lot sooner. We cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. We're not going to let the cure be worse than the problem. At the end of the 15-day period, we'll make a decision as to which way we want to go, where we want to go, the timing. And essentially, we're referring to the timing of the opening, essentially the opening of our country. Welcome to the Buck Saxon Show, everybody. We are in week two of the real quarantine effort here in the country. And we're in the second phase of the 15 days to slow the spread. And already we're seeing politics take over here. Um, We have the fighting on Capitol Hill underway after Nancy Pelosi's 11th hour effort to just hold people hostage. And you are seeing not just partisan divides here, but class divides. You're seeing people who very clearly still get a paycheck working from home, uh, still feel like their business is relatively sound and they can weather three months indoors, six months indoors. Uh, and there's a, a real effort underway for those people, it seems, to shout down anybody who raises the prospect of what happens when people that can't pay their bills can't pay their bills. Meaning what happens when all of a sudden the rent checks don't clear, when you're running up a credit card debt, or maybe you don't have a credit card, and now how do you get groceries without the checks coming in? That's the reality for millions and millions of people right now. But for those for whom that is not the reality, there seems to be a very uh, dismissive and really nasty sneering that goes on. Oh, do you want people to die, they say? Do you just want people to expire? What about your parents or grandparents if you're not in the high-risk category? This is what you're hearing from the left. And to this I say, God, I would like it if we could have a real discussion in this country about what the acceptable policy risks are from different approaches. Now, let's understand this. When the president talks about trade-offs, as he did yesterday, when he says, let's not let this be worse than the disease, the trade-off here is acceptable risk versus, you know, acceptable risk from the virus versus acceptable risk to the economy. There is a balancing act going on here. These two things are both important. And at some stage, at some phase of this, there will be states and or the federal government that lessen some of these restrictions. And in response to the lessening of those restrictions, there is a probability, not a certainty, but a probability that there could be more cases 
than there would have been under continued restriction. And if those restrictions are lifted and there are to some degree, I'm not talking about, a, oh, we just go back to life as normal. But if you lift any of those restrictions, there's more cases. And some of those cases require hospitalization. And some of those hospitalizations end up in someone dying from this terrible scourge. Are we then going to turn around and say that the government is guilty of murder? Is, is that because that seems to be the position that I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of those on the left. This formulation that has appeared, not just among Democrats, there are Republicans, too, that you don't care. The, the, the quote here that I'm seeing pa- paraphrase, but this is the, the basic talking point. If you don't agree that an endless shutdown is completely acceptable until the risks of this have dissipated to the point where I, I don't know, no one has really established that. You don't care about about your parents or your grandparents dying from this. All you care about is your 401k. That's what I keep seeing. Uh, which is a, a, a horrible thing to say to anybody. But let's keep in mind that, you know, it has been a, an article of faith for years that people who don't believe in climate change catastrophism are are just not interested in the planet's survival. And they don't care that future generations will be living in this, dis- this is the climate catastrophist position, they'll be living in this end of world, end of day scenario, where the hots are hotter, the wets are wetter, storm systems, all, all the terrible things we're always told about, you know, massive flooding and everything else. We don't care about that because we just are so mean. It's not that we just disagree on whether the risk of that happening is worth the massive and clear trade-offs now. We get into this discussion as a society all the time, and the president mentioned this yesterday in his press conference. He talked about how if we uh, were to take the position that is now gaining a lot of uh, a lot of supporters, particularly on the Democrat side, and I'll get into the, the very obvious politics of all this, too. But right now, there's this is more the emotional response you get from anybody, uh, not just on the left. There are some on the right that I see that have decided this is the appropriate response as well if you say that there is acceptable risk from a lessening of these restrictions in a matter of weeks not months and that acceptable risk will entail the possibility of further infection in some areas than would have occurred with maximum shutdown because we cannot actually allow the economy to die entirely Uh, If you say that you're advocating for death, that's what the position is of many on the left. And the president yesterday was speaking about not letting this become worse than the the disease, because I think he recognizes what the real consequences would be of a complete collapse of the U.S. economy. And we also live in a society where there are trade offs that are made all the time. I would look very foolish. it, It would be a very bizarre position to take that we have to have, forget about a 20 mile an hour speed limit, let's make it 10 or 15. Then, then you know, cars could hit people and it was very unlikely they'd die, you'd get really hurt, but you know, most people would be able, usually survivor, uh, survivability from being hit by a car, I forget the exact numbers, but if it's under 25 miles an hour, you're likely to survive. If it's over, I think it's 30 or 35 miles an hour, you're very likely to not survive. So, we could just make the speed limit 15 miles an hour and we would save tens of thousands of lives every single year. But no one really takes seriously that that's what we should do, even though, and the president brought this up in his speech, even though it is, it is just a fact, it is a statistical certainty that if you made the speed limit 
And now I know people would say, well, there'd still be some speeding and some, right. But if you enforce this and this became the speed limit, you would save easily thousands and thousands of lives every year. We understand that there are policy trade-offs that are made. There's acceptable versus unacceptable risk. We try to save every life, but trying to give everybody absolute protection, you know, you cannot live your life in a bubble or you won't have much of a life that you're leading in the first place. Now, that's not to say that I I don't think we should take extreme measures to protect vulnerable populations and seniors. I absolutely think that that's what should happen right now. But there is a very real discussion that should be underway about how quickly we return to work with precautions in place and what level of risk, not just to, to vulnerable populations. Look, people can get this. Healthy people can get this and be in very bad shape and healthy people can get this and they can die from it. That is that is reality. What is acceptable risk in order to make sure the economy keeps going so that we can have food and ventilators and medical staff and masks and all these things rely on an economy? Uh, Just staying, staying absolutely in place and shut down indefinitely would have the would have effects where you wouldn't really be able to even uh, fight the disease the way that we currently are fighting it over time. And I'm just seeing that, you know, the viciousness and the insanity of people on, on the left in particular, when anyone in good faith tries to approach this topic. You know, right now, they're saying Trump is putting profits over lives. It, it's as predictable as anything that you could ever see. M- meanwhile, he's making the case that we all know this is reality. Uh, how, how many people, you know, you get yelled at now if you bring up the flu. Why can't we have a discussion? This is based on CDC data. And this is. At a point in time where and by the way, I'm here in New York City in the middle of the city in the place that is by far the scariest to be right now, arguably outside of Italy in the world for coronavirus. And I'm dealing with these precautions all the time. I'm getting very scary notices from my building about, you know, different things that we have to now not do or that we have to change. I'm seeing this all the time. You know, I'm concerned about family members and loved ones here, especially those who are in the vulnerable population. I'm doing things day to day to help them out. Uh, But I also understand that we need to have a discussion about how long this lasts, because there are politicians who are going around saying might be three months, might be six months, might be nine months. Now, three or six or nine months of dealing with the virus in some capacity. Yeah, that's to be expected. Three to six months of shutdown, no businesses operating. Is that even... Is that even really, first of all, I mean, is, is it feasible as in will people comply with it? I think you'll have mass noncompliance. But at some point you ask the question, okay, if we think that it will decrease infections by overall, or it'll lessen the spread of the infections by, uh, you know, who knows, 20, 30% if we stay in this quarantine state versus if we do some version of measures in place to protect us, but also business begins to operate. Is that is that now unthinkable? Uh, because then I want to know why when we look at the flu data, which shows you that for the last and I just looked at it today, they estimate 25 to about 60,000 people in America have died from the flu from uh, September of 2019 to present to March. That's that's what the estimate says. So you could have upwards of six. And by the way, it's likely to be at the higher end of that estimate, given how many times people uh, how often people would die from this and they don't do they don't catch it on the autopsy. They don't know. 
There's also comorbidity that it's involved. There can be multiple viruses that infect a person. Bacterial infection of if you die from a bacterial infection of the lungs, but you had the pneumonia was induced by the flu. You know, how, how does this all get quantified and how do they catch it? So I would like to know why we're such a heartless society that we didn't shut down uh, entirely. Remember, the, the, the standard we're being held to is if you think there's such a thing as acceptable risk, that's not the same. This isn't the same thing as sending people off to an island to die somewhere in quarantine. That's not what anyone's talking about. But acceptable risk parameters, if you don't believe in that, I need to know then why we don't shut down all business from September until March every year to prevent 30, 40, 50,000 flu deaths in this country. Well, are, are people heartless that don't want to shut down that way? See, this is, this is a kind of moral grandstanding and blackmailing that occurs when there's an effort to have a real discussion about, okay, what are we really trying to accomplish here? How long can we sustain this? And what is acceptable risk? Risk of hospitalization, risk of casualties from hospitalization. That is the discussion. Now, you know, Cuomo, I saw him this morning. There are others who are talking about this, and they're promising that we can do both. We can have smart policy on health care and restart the economy. I think that if you're just going to call it smart, sure, we can do both. But let's understand that there will be risk. This is a fact. And I know all the everyone's freaking out and yelling about this. There will be additional risk from opening up any business, any economy, any you know, business activity, there is inherently additional risk in that situation versus a continued mandated lockdown quarantine circumstance. And with additional risk comes the possibility of the likelihood of some bad things happening. Are we willing to accept some change in those risk uh, calculations? That's the discussion. It's not Oh, people don't care if grandma dies as long as their 401k goes up. That's it's horrific. It's intellectually dishonest. It's, it's really grotesque, actually. And they're accusing people on the other side who are saying, OK, can we have a conversation here about how long does this last? How long do we do this? I mean, I can sit around and just say, yeah, mandatory lockdown, at least three months, no business, nothing. No one gets to go to work unless they can work from home, but no other businesses can open. Because I'm such a good person, that's what I think needs to happen. And at 60 days, if any state decides or if, any, if anyone's advocating for some lessening of those restrictions, and then there's any spike at all in infections and hospitalizations that occurs from that, I'll say, oh, these people are they're clearly they're murderers. That's the, that is what is being put out there right now. That's, that's the discussion. And it's disconcerting because we need to be having adult, sober, serious conversations among people who are we're all affected by this. This affects everyone. Just shut up, shut up. Listen to the epidemiologists. I'll listen to epidemiologists about the risks from this, washing my hands. I, I'm not putting epidemiologists in charge of America for the next six months. And that, that's what I think the left does not really gather here. That's what they're missing. And it's not helpful to anyone to pretend that there are people in this debate who don't care if their loved ones die as long as as long as they see their stocks rebound. I don't even care about stock. I don't even, I don't even own enough stock to care about it. This is this is an abomination in this debate to even say these things. But this is now the line. There's a moral blackmail that's going on because people want it their way. And if you don't agree with them, you're a bad, terrible person who doesn't care. I mean, this is, you know, throw granny off a cliff all over again, like back in the Obamacare days. If you disagree with the policy, you're saying people should die. 
This is what they do. This is what they're saying. Meanwhile, uh, there are very real and mounting concerns about what the long-term economic damage of the current situation will be. And the president is out there saying that we need to take this into account. He's talking to his experts all day. But if you bring this up, be prepared. The uh, virtue signaling left will come after you and suggest that there's a way that we can just restart the economy and no additional risk from this. No additional risk from the virus, even when we restart the economy. I would like to see what that plan is. I'd like to see how it looks. And I could I could stand on the sidelines and be an irresponsible jerk. And the moment that anyone tries to get the economy started to say, see, you don't care. People over profits. Why don't you care about the dead people? We all care about the dead people. We all wish that our fellow Americans didn't have to go through this. And we don't want a single person to be hospitalized, to lose their life to this. We're all working to the same goal. And those who insist on pretending we're not are acting in bad faith. And they're being bad people right now at a time when the country is in a true crisis. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I am confident that the president has listened to and seen all of our data as it evolves. I think you can see that the president over these three weeks has been very focused on what the American people need, both economically and public health wise. And I think it's incumbent on every public health official to be looking at their data in a very granular way to understand who's at risk, who's at risk of hospitalization, who's at risk of mortality, how do we stop the spread and really move to a, a 21st century supercomputer approach rather than a more generic slide rule based approach. The president's listening. Everyone's crunching the data. The president is listening. This is not the message that you would get from the media. However, this is not what they want you to think. They, they are invested in a narrative and you're seeing the return of the ugliest politics of the left and the Democrat Party this week, not just over the uh, the stalling of the rescue bill, which we know is completely a Democrat ploy. This is underhanded, dirty pool from the Democrats. There's no question about that. Anyone who says otherwise is just being unserious. And we also see that the anti-Trumpism behind much of the criticism that that was in the early days of this has returned now. And there is not just there's not just a, a population that is in fear, but there's a population that has been trained to hate this president. And now they're also scared and they want to crush anybody who disagrees with anything they're saying right now. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, if you put the economy ahead of public health, and then you have people dropping like flies from the pandemic, you're going to ruin the economy anyway. There's no choice about this. It's got to lean toward public health. We have to tamp down the uh, pandemic, as Sanjay said. We're two weeks behind where the virus is. So when the president starts talking about we're going to open up, we're going to open up for business, not only is he, not only are we arguing about, you know, are we going to wait uh, 15 days and then go back to normal, he's undermining the efforts to keep people socially distant now, because what the here is, well, you know, we got to open up the economy or maybe the social distancing doesn't matter so much. So morally, you know, it's public health over the economy in the short run. OK, a, a lot to unpack here. There, there's a this, this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. See, everyone, everyone who's intelligent and being serious recognizes that there is a balance here. 
right? And, and that we don't, we don't shut down because of flu, because it would be considered more damaging to all of us in the aggregate. And so we just have come to recognize that there is a likelihood, not a certainty, but a likelihood of large numbers of people dying from the flu every year. Society makes these. We, we absolutely could go into quarantine and that would save lives from flu. We absolutely, but we don't. And no one sits around saying, why don't we go into total quarantine? Okay, COVID-19 is different. We're trying to stop the spike. We're trying to get ahead of this. I understand what the arguments are. And that's why I have been advocating for 15 days the government's way. Let's let them move. I watched the press conference with Governor Cuomo this morning. Remember, New York is the is on the absolute front line here. New York City in particular, where I'm doing this show right now. We have by far the most. We have like 20,000 cases. The next closest is California is around 2000 ish. So we're 10 X. And I have tons of friends here, people that I mean, I have family members that I love. I have dear friends of mine for decades who are well into the high risk category. And I think we should do everything that we absolutely can to protect those individuals. But there is also a discussion here about how long all of us, meaning everyone, has to be on lockdown, including those who are willing to take. Remember, it's all about risk tolerance. Younger people are at lower risk, not no risk, lower risk of dying from this disease or even being hospitalized and being ventilated. So, okay, when do we get to start lessening some of the restrictions? See, the, the way this guy said it, go back to normal. That's not the argument that's being made. It's are we willing to accept a slightly elevated risk? And people who tell you there's not an elevated risk, oh, you want people to die, they're idiots. Clearly, the moment you lessen some of these, unless the plan, and maybe some people think this is the plan, is to wait until there are no cases, no cases whatsoever. I, and, it, and everyone's saying this might be endemic, meaning within the population, this might be endemic for at least the next 18 months before we get a vaccine. Let's hope it works, by the way. If you think you're going to sit around and wait for that vaccine, they might say, yeah, we tried. Uh, we have these trials, but this disease mutates very quickly and we don't have anything. You know, yeah, that's a possibility, too. So are we just going to sit in maximum quarantine? Am I a better person because I say, I don't care what, I don't care how many people, if I took the position, I don't care how many people lose their livelihoods, lose their, lose their ability to pay their bills. I don't care how much businesses absolutely collapse. Boeing, my friends, major American corporations are on their knees. The airline industry is about to die. Now, for those of you who say, oh, well, whatever, you know, creative destruction, capitalism, it'll... When we get through this, if there are no airlines, uh, guess what? We're going to have a whole problem for commerce, business, individual travel for, for leisure and what that does to the economy as well. It's going to be gone. This is not normal economic stuff. This is not just, oh, we're in a downturn. This is a shutdown, right? So we, we can either accept that there are going to be elevated risk parameters here or we can do what i was saying a moment ago which i mean when i say accept have a discussion 
a public discussion. Everyone's affected by this. Everyone's involved. What is feasible? What is not? The health experts say this is acceptable, tolerable risk. And then the policymakers say, all right, we're going to go forward with that. But people who are telling you that it's just about putting public health first, this is a slogan. Okay, well, what does that mean? How for how long? Do we, well, of course, we're putting it first. That's why we've shut down the economy. But am I am I a better person? Am I a more moral person if I say, let's just shut the economy down totally because I want an absolute maximum protection. I'm not willing to accept any additional risk. Remember, risk does equal greater hospitalizations, not not, you know, a free for all that we don't do anything. Greater hospitalizations and with hospitalizations will come some loss of life. This is reality. No one speaks about it in these terms because it feels uncomfortable to. But I, I want someone to explain to me how that's not the case. Risk will equal hospitalizations, will equal people dying from this. All the calculations we're looking at are about mortality and about percentage of the population. Am I a better person if I say, I just think we should be on total quarantine, total lockdown, no business whatsoever uh, until next, you know, until this time next year, 12 months. Would I be a would I be a better person if I told anybody that questioned that? I'm sorry, you just you just don't care if people die. You don't care if people die, huh? But this is what this is what is this is the way the narrative is trending right now. You don't care about death if you want to have a discussion about the very real impact on human beings from a Great Depression Part Two versus acceptable risk with preventative measures in place to protect vulnerable populations, but getting the beginning of the economy going. This is what the president's saying. He talked about trade-offs last night in the speech, and I knew this would happen. Trade-offs last night when, as soon as he says this, people are saying, see, he doesn't care about death. It's profits over, over people's lives, is what everyone's saying. Uh, you know, you can't put a price on human life. You hear this, and I know that that feels good. It sounds good, and it's true as a moral principle, is it true as an organizing principle for society? Because if you can't put a price on human life, that, well, first of all, that the Democrats in the abortion lobby, I mean, don't even get me started on that. But if you can't put a price on human life, then that principle must be adhered to with regard to yearly flu preparations. We must shut down massively across the country. Otherwise, we're going to lose 40 or 50,000 people every year. Why, why someone explain the moral differentiation between those, you know, that exists in those positions and they, they, they can't. But look, I understand you have this you have this uh, this storm right now of very real fear, very real concern, justifiable fear and concern. I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried about family members. I'm worried about myself. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm here in the midst. I know a lot of you who listen to this show and, you know, I love all of you across the country. And I, I'm so appreciative that you are still with me and still joining me as I'm doing this show in the midst of this pandemic. You know, every day, uh, a lot of you are in places where the risk is far more remote. And, and you're allowed to you're allowed to feel like there's a different risk tolerance for you, for your family. And that may be reflected in the way your state deals with this, too. Right. It, to, to think that there needs to be a one size fits all approach. China locked down. Not that we should do what China did. They were soldering people into their homes. But, you know, China locked down Wuhan City and, and Hubei province didn't lock down the entire country to the same degree, though. So even in the most even the most extreme in terms of response to this, there were di there was differentiation within the same country. So. 
that that means that that when we look at this now, we need to accept that, you know, those of you who I saw some of you writing in from uh, KLBJ Austin. I, I want to get to Austin so badly. And now, of course, I can't even travel, can't go anywhere. KLBJ Austin, uh, you know, Austin has had a shutdown. Um, you know, they're they're now at the more extreme end of the preparations uh, uh, spectrum here. You know, other other cities across the country. I know obviously KEIB folks listening out there in Los Angeles, L.A. is very much under lockdown. Gavin Newsom is taking the approach. He's like, look, this might be three months. All right. Well, can we have a conversation about that? What, what, what do we need the numbers to look like? Because unless someone's going to tell me that if the, the numbers have to be zero, at least they can be consistent. But then they're willing to say economic catastrophe and destruction is completely acceptable until we have zero spread, zero cases, zero deaths from this. We might be waiting for that for years, but at least that's a consistent position. Any other position is built in with the inherent assumption. There, there is an inherent assumption of some risk, and that means risk of death. Now, I understand, and this is where I'm, I'm trying to be walking a little bit of, of, a, of a tightrope here, because how we talk about this does matter, and I get that. And it can sound inha- it can sound callous when you're discussing mortality rates. And this is true just of the medical profession, I think, generally, when people are discussing, you know, this is true when you look at the, the risk of any pharmaceutical drug. This is true of the risk of taking Advil, the risk of taking Tylenol. You can die from that. You can have stomach bleeding. It can happen. You know, the reason why we have uh, every time you watch any commercial for a, a pharmaceutical, you know, uh, oh, take like blah, blah, blah. And it'll, you know, and it, people are all on horseback riding and they're all laughing in the sunshine. And they're like, you know, could cause, you know, a heart attack, anal leakage, you know, uh, all, all kinds of stuff. Right. I mean, you've got all these scary, bad things that happen and you say, OK, well, does that mean does that mean no one should take the drug? And does that mean the pharmaceutical companies are murderers because some, you know, some tiny percentage of people might have really serious complications leading to death? Should we ban those pharmaceuticals from the stores? You know, it's time for us to start having a, a real philosophical understanding of what's going on here because our civil liberties are at risk. The Constitution is at risk. Pelosi, the Democrats are ruthless with the power grab that's going on on Capitol Hill right now. The anti-Trump movement sees this as their only their best opportunity, not just to put a Democrat in the White House in 2020, but to destroy Trump and Trumpism and drag every Trump supporter they can for as long as they can. Just just rake them across the coals. Uh, That's all also in this discussion. Now, it was last week a little bit more about how we keep each other safe and sound. And now it's turned into orange man bad and if you think the economy should be opened up and are willing to accept some additional risk you're you're a murderer who only cares about your 401k this is a horrifically vicious stupid dishonest way to have the conversation right now Um, but people are scared demagogues are all over the place and they want payback for three years of lying about Trump being wrong about the crises he was throwing us into. There were no. Now we see what a crisis is. There were no crises with Donald Trump the first three years worthy of the kind of freak out that the media had. This is a crisis. And they're using every trick they have, every tool they have at their disposal 
to dump all of it, not just on Trump. Remember that it's going to be Trump supporters too. anybody that's thought this administration was doing a good job before you are. You are going to be made to stare at the body count and say, see, your guy did this, even though the UK and Italy and Germany and Spain and China, all these countries that apparently don't have leaders as horrible as Donald Trump have been absolutely wrecked by this. But we're going to be told that it was all Trump's fault and they need to they're preparing that assault. I shouldn't say they're even preparing there. There's an ongoing narrative thread here that they need to keep that in place. And that, unfortunately, is also making this a much nastier, more acrimonious discussion than it needs to be. Just just for the record, so that, you know, when Media Matters or one of these other organizations that came after me for what I was saying yesterday, uh, when, when I'm going the record, I want the maximum protection of human life possible across the board. And I want a serious discussion about what is acceptable risk for society uh, for society to tolerate when it comes to our response to this, the timelines for this and trying to protect all of us, including our ability to sustain our society while we're dealing with this pandemic. But I want maximum protection for everybody. Every life is precious. And I have to tell you, um, I would put anyway, I, I, I start to get a little bit too fired up about this. I want to say, you know, any of these lives that are making this this argument, this conversation about their moral superiority. Uh, it's amazing how much I see them and, and recognize they're not even good people before this. They're not kind, decent human beings absent, you know, before this pandemic even happened. Now, though, they're the ones who really care. Sure. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. It's not a question of uh, if the economic shutdown is absolutely brutal for Americans, for our fellow citizens, for our economy. Of course it is. It's just that those on the right in the business world talking to Donald Trump are just misreading what the choices are right now. There is no option to just let everyone go back out and go back to normal if a pandemic rages across the country and infects 50% of the population and kills a percentage point at the low end of those infected and also melts down all the hospitals. What kind of economy do you think you're going to have under those conditions? As the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom orders a countrywide lockdown for the next three weeks, after resisting the idea, the President of the United States appears to be just considering the opposite. Okay, enough of that. Let's take our chances with the virus. That's a false choice. There's no one who's advocating for let's just pretend this isn't a problem and go back to normal. But what do these liberals and by the way, Chris Hayes, I'm sure at MSNBC hasn't missed a paycheck, lives in a very fancy, probably a brownstone, I would guess, in Brooklyn, a multimillion dollar home, certainly. And he has not missed a paycheck. He's not worried about any of this. In fact, his viewership has probably gone up. What does he say to the families of people who have been told you cannot go to work? Your job is not allowed. The state is mandating you cannot do your job. You cannot go back to being a welder. You cannot go back to being a plumber. You cannot do these things right now. And you have no money in the bank, but the government's going to show up with a check for you soon. How much psychological pressure and stress do we think we keep these people under? And what is the real benefit? The virus is still spreading, folks, even with these measures in place. So it's not like we've got this beat. And if we just keep doing what we're doing, we're going to be fine. Quite the opposite. As we see, the virus is spreading very, very rapidly. 
So if there is a, you know, if there's a way to put the economy back in action that doesn't create a dramatic spike in infections and hospitalizations, is that worthy of conversation? No, but instead he's saying, you know, I don't even know where he got this, this number, that, you know, 50%, Producer Mark, did he say 50% will die or will be infected? I think infected. Infected. 50% infected, then the numbers of people that are supposed to be uh, that'll be infected with this based on those projections. It's over three cycles, as doc- Dr. Burks has told us. So that would mean if we dealt, dealt with this for 18 months. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, team, I, I wanted to get into the details of the partisan back and forth now over a bill that should be entirely bipartisan. Democrats are showing us who they are here, Democrat leadership and others showing us that uh, they're disgraceful and they just don't care. They really don't care. I know this is the kind of rhetoric that you often hear about politics, but this this time it's really true they, they don't care about the suffering that's going on. They think it's more important that they get money for windmills and solar power. Right. That's that's just a fact. That is what is going on right now. There was a bipartisan bill that had agreement all the way through and they waited the last minute and said, nope, sorry. I mean, this is just the most bare knuckle negotiating tactic you can think of. You bring somebody in. This is this is classic. You know, you could do this with any kind of contract. You bring somebody in and you say, hey, let's just work on this together. And that way, when we get to the end, we'll know that this has come from both of us. And so then it's just putting the signatures on it and you do that and you do that. But you've got a deadline. And then at the last minute, you say, sorry, no, want to do a whole new one before the deadline. And now the deadline is really just public pressure. Right? So that's what they're trying to do. It's disgusting, but this is what the Democrats have gone gone with. I'll get back to that. I wanted to tell you a different story, though, because you're seeing this now. If you're looking for it, you're seeing the way that this virus, which is very, very uh, dangerous. And I've, I think I'm taking it as seriously as anybody and I know some of you, by the way, have been writing into me to say that you think that I'm too negative on this or I'm look, I'm, I'm trying to just go where the facts are. I, I think the I, I believe the administration's position on this. Trump is saying things like it's very bad and we have to be very serious about this. So unless you think that, I don't know, it's I don't think it's going to be the catastrophe that many on the left are saying. I don't think we're going to have millions of people dead. Uh, I think it's going to be in the range of a bad flu season. That's what I think will happen. That's just my guess. It's a guess. I wouldn't even say it's a prediction. Um, but uh, there are efforts underway in the media to make sure that Trump is getting blamed for this in ways that are bizarre. Uh, and this is the story that was making the rounds uh, last night. And y- you really... You know, you look at this and you end up saying, do they have any decency whatsoever in the media at all? Or or forget decency. Well, that. But do they have any honesty? Are they willing to be honest about what they're doing, what they're saying? There is a very troubling trend whereby many people in the media like to say as a means of attacking Donald Trump that he has overstated the effectiveness of chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, similar drug. Uh, he has overstated the effect, effectiveness of what is generally a anti-malaria drug uh, for treating this. That is 
Not true. That's a lie. He has not overstated it. He has said he is optimistic. He is hopeful, but he has also said it could be nothing we don't know. And he's been very, very clear and explicit on that point. Now, I mentioned to you yesterday that there was a news story making the rounds. This was from yesterday morning of three people in Nigeria who overdosed on chloroquine. We'll just say chloroquine. It might be hydroxychloroquine, but on chloroquine in in Nigeria because they were worried about coronavirus. Now, I understand that we live in a time when people will do things like the Tide Pod Challenge, and there had to be these uh, public service announcements that drinking bleach will not prevent you from getting coronavirus. It will probably kill you doing that. Uh, That there are people that just, they panic and they do very, very foolish things. Um, The the reason the Nigeria situation, remember three people in a country 5,000 miles away, a country of 180 million people, three people die from taking too much chloroquine. uh, I'm assuming not under medical supervision of any kind. And all the headlines, all the stories are in response to Trump overpromising or in response to Trump's comments on and and they're tying this to Trump uh, just because it, it's a means of, of attacking him and keeping the story going that he has overpromised on chloroquine which is not true he has not he keeps saying I'm hopeful and then Fauci comes out and says yeah look we, we don't want to get too far on this the president's hopeful I'm saying we just don't know we're looking into it but the president's hopeful We understand what that word means. It doesn't mean, yeah, it's great. Let's get out the champagne and this is a big victory dance moment. Okay. So they ran the story in Nigeria and I pointed out, I said, why is this even a news story? Maybe it's a news story in Nigeria, but I mean, Americans, we lost 100 Americans in the last 24 hours to coronavirus. I I don't think that we need to hear about three people that did something that, look, it's, it's sad and I feel badly for the same way I feel badly for people that, you know, believe what they see on the Internet and then, you know, lie down in traffic and videotape it because they think it's cool. Or, you know, the people that lose their lives trying to take a selfie near the Grand Canyon or some other, you know, monument and and they they fall down the ravine. I mean, you know, you feel badly for these people, but it's really not a public. This isn't like a public health emergency. The mistakes that some people are making, um, this is just people making very bad choices. Well, we have an even more extreme version of this from. And remember, I'm telling you why the media likes to run with these stories. It's because it's a way of attacking Trump. So NBC News yesterday ran with this story. Arizona man dies after ingesting chloroquine in an attempt to prevent coronavirus. And they, they ran these quotes from this woman. And by the way, BuzzFeed and. There were a whole bunch of news outlets that all went with this version of the story. I think Politico might have had one, too. Quote, we and they went to this, uh, the now widow of the, a man died. His wife is in the hospital. They both, the story says, took chloroquine because of Trump. And they then went to ask this woman who's been hospitalized for this what, 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 what went on. Remember, now they've elevated this. This is a national news story, my friends, a national news story. And they said the following, quote, we saw Trump on TV, every channel and all of his buddies and that this was safe. Trump kept saying it was basically pretty much a cure. She implored Vaughn Hilliard, the journalist behind this just debacle, educate the people. Don't listen to Trump. Okay, 
you might think to yourself, oh, hold, hold on a second. Why is this the president's fault? How is the president being held responsible for this? This seems quite strange. Um, a few things here. Uh, first of all, the people here, the two people that are, remember, national news story. We're in the middle of a pandemic. The media is supposed to be all hands on deck for the benefit of the American people, giving us necessary information. NBC News, one of the largest corporate media conglomerates in the country, right? One of the one of the big three, CBS, NBC, ABC. And they're running with this story. And you might say, well, hold on a second. What are the facts here, really? Because these people, these two individuals, one is now dead, did not ingest chloroquine, the drug. And this was not made clear in the headlines and the way this was shared. They ingested chloroquine phosphate. Chloroquine phosphate is plant aquarium or or fish aquarium cleaner. It is a cleaner for aquariums. And if you look at it, it has on it a big label that says poison not for human consumption or dangerous. Do not, you know, do not consume. It could not be any more obvious to a person that pays attention that this is not something that you should do, but they left that out. So their, their story runs around. I saw tens of thousands of retweets and shares and likes and everything else about this story. <gasps> Look at Trump. His overly optimistic view of chloroquine is resulting in more death. That's the, that is the media. That's why they did this. And then you say, hold on a second. It, they didn't even take the right drug. And I hate to have to explain this, but I think I guess I have to. If a doctor tells me you need more sodium in your diet and I put sodium cyanide on my steak and eat it, that's on me. That's my fault. All right. We can't hold people responsible for the very unintelligent decisions that others make, not based on the advice they were given, but based on their own lack of processing power to figure out what the advice advice really was. The president, Dr. Fauci and others have talked about, I mean, New York State has trials going on right now using chloroquine to try to treat coronavirus. Because people are talking about the possibility of chloroquine being useful, because people are talking about the possibility that this may lower the mortality rate of, we'll, we'll have to see, does not mean that anyone who brings this up, it doesn't mean that anyone who brings this up is responsible for someone taking an entirely different drug, entirely different substance that happens to have chloroquine in the name. I mean, my, my point about sodium and sodium cyanide, I think is quite, you know, sodium is in your body, you need it, it's salt. Sodium cyanide, as you probably figured out from the name, is poisonous. Highly, highly toxic, will kill you. So, why is this buried in the story? Now, some of them have said, yeah, we didn't really. Uh, I'm trying to, I'll try to see if I can find one of the, uh, you know. Oh, oh, and just so you know, um, John Favreau, who is a speechwriter for Barack Obama and has over a million Twitter followers, very, very well-known guy on the left. He's kind of one of the smug Obama, o- Obama, uh, you know, younger people in the Obama White House who's part of the pod bros, the podcast pod save America crew. He tweeted out last night. The president is directly responsible. So I'm not I'm not 
pretending that they're tying this. This is a guy with a large platform who is straight up saying that two people who are told, you know, maybe sodium in your diet is a good thing and do the equivalent of ingesting sodium cyanide, not asking a doctor, not even doing a Google search before they do it. That's the president's fault. This is moronic, right? People who say this are morons. This John Favreau guy, I mean, I, I would love, it would be great to see him try to debate this point with anybody, really. The president's talking about something and someone hears that and does something really stupid that has nothing to do with what the president said. Bi chemically has nothing to do with what the president said. Biochemically. And the president's responsible. But th see, this is what we all know this is going on right now. This is a story. You might say, Buck, why are you talking about this so much? Because this is, what's, this is what the media's mission right now is. You think their mission is, because they'll tell you this, to make sure that we get all the information we need and you know, that we're, they're being responsible with making sure that people hear everything they need to about this. That's not what their main mission is. Remember what they've been saying for the last three years. Remember what they have been telling the American people. The media has been claiming the president's a traitor and he's a clear and present danger that he's corrupt, that he should be removed from office, that he could start a nuclear war at any moment with North Korea, that he started a war with Iran that never happened. We've heard all these things. They still believe all of that. They haven't suspended any of that because we are in now an actual crisis after they've lied to us about crises for years. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to try to use this crisis as a battering ram against Trump and anyone who supports him. They are, they are unleashing a ferocious get everybody you can around Trump and crush them right now because they know people are scared and they're leveraging the mob mentality. So they'll lie about what people say. They'll, they'll try to, and they'll do exactly what Favreau does here. Trump is responsible. Two people very, and it, it's sad, but it's true, very stupidly drank fish tank cleaner because it sounded like a word that the president said that he did not tell anyone to take on their own or without, you know, medical supervision. Never happened. Didn't say it was going to cure anyone. Explicitly said it's not necessarily even helpful. We don't know. That's Trump's fault. If you believe that, that these two people drinking fish tank cleaner, if you believe that that's on Trump, you can believe that literally anything is on Trump. You can find a way to put anything on Trump. And, oh, that's what they've been doing, though, isn't it? I guess that's not new at all. It's just a reminder that even now when we are all worried about our health, we're worried about the health of our loved ones, we're worried about the future of this country, worried about the economy, we have done a total about face. You know, listen to me three, six months ago. I was telling you when the country was good. I was saying, don't listen to people that are claiming catastrophe this or this is terrible or whatever. I said, enjoy this time because it will not last. I played that prediction for you on the show. It was true. Now we are in a catastrophe. Now we are in a really difficult circumstance. And for those who believe the virus isn't that bad, guess what? The government and the, and the economic consequences alone are a catastrophe. Well, no matter what you think about the real, uh, the real threat of the virus, I think the threat is substantial. Some of you listening to this think it's markedly less substantial than I do. But the government shutdown of the economy is a, an, a, as much of an economic crisis as we've ever seen, especially if it continues. But they'll put anything they can on Trump. Doesn't matter how dishonest it is. Doesn't matter how grotesque. They'll do anything they can right now. And they're not going to change. And they, the same way that the left cared so much 
about, and I, I remember this, I was in the Iraq office of the CIA, crunching, doing what little, you know, CIA uh, cubicle, cubicle warriors, you know, coffee makers do. Uh, I was crunching numbers, and I did it overseas, too. And, you know, I got to downplay that, because otherwise, you know, the left will come after me. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Super, super Delta Ninja guy, whatever. I'm like, yeah, I just, uh, whatever. Um, but I remember crunching the numbers and looking at it and recognizing that the anti-war left, you know, they wanted everyone to know about every, everybody that came back in both wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. They wanted Now, I'm okay with wanting to raise greater awareness about the sacrifice that our warriors are making. I'm fine with that. What I'm not fine with is how it stopped under Obama. That's right. All of a sudden, the deaths that were happening in Helmand province and Kandahar and southern Afghanistan, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Marines and airmen and infantrymen uh, from the army dying much higher rates than died in Afghanistan in the last four years of the Bush administration, for example. The greatest number of casualties in Afghanistan happened under Obama. How many people even know that? Because they didn't care. The media, the left, the anti-war movement, they didn't actually care about stopping the war. They didn't care about the deaths as much as they cared about making sure that it hurt the right and that it would not hurt the left. You will see that same mentality playing out in the weeks. I guarantee you in the weeks and months ahead from the left over this coronavirus, and they will be vicious about it and absolutely unprincipled. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Now Congress must demonstrate the same bipartisanship again and join together to pass the Senate bill as written and avoid playing any more partisan games. They have to get together and just stop with the partisan politics. And uh, I think that's happening. I got a call a little while ago. I guess they're getting closer. It should go quickly. And uh, it must go quickly. It's not really a choice. They don't have a choice. They have to make a deal. There should not be a time for political agendas, but rather one for focusing solely and squarely on the needs of the American people. We are going to save American workers, and we're going to save them quickly. And we're going to save our great American companies, both small and large. This was a medical problem. We are not going to let it turn into a long-lasting financial problem. I hope the president's right about that last part. I worry, though, because there's so much, uh, there's so much at stake in terms of power for the left right now, and they know it. They want to tear Trump down. They also want to get things that they could not get in normal times. They are exploiting this crisis. I'll walk you through how and what we should do in response to that. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we started this morning, there were 35,224 cases this morning. Right now, as of the latest numbers, there are 41,708 cases in the United States today. That means we've had an additional 6,484 cases today while the Democrats are blockading. And by the way, where are the Democrats? C-SPAN doesn't show this whole chamber often, but it'd be nice if they did, because that entire side of the chamber is empty. Ted Cruz fired up, among others, on the Republican side of the Senate for what really was a betrayal of this moment, a betrayal of the American people by the Democrats, a betrayal of the spirit of bipartisan compromise that should be the reality of our legislators when they're dealing with a crisis like this. 
It's appalling. Absolutely appalling what the Democrats have done. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees it. And yet we're supposed to move on like it's not that big a deal that they've done this and just cave, cave to them on everything. I mean, here was really the most brazen moment in this whole thing. Nancy Pelosi gave a little speech. But notice how no one's even talked about Joe Biden doing his version of the coronavirus briefing yesterday. Pelosi came out and just said, I mean, she she did the equivalent of a political hostage video. And here is her. She is the terrorist in this analogy. And here is her demand. Play 17. The Affordable Care Act stands today among the great pillars of American health and financial security, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the Affordable Care Act. Now we find ourselves in the depths of one of the most serious health and economic emergencies our nation has ever faced. The protections of the Affordable Care Act are more important now than ever. But right now, in the middle of the coronavirus, the Trump administration is in court suing to tear down the entire Affordable Care Act, every last protection and benefit. If President Trump succeeds in striking down the ACA in court, gone is the ban on insurers putting limits on your health care. Gone are guaranteed essential health benefits and free preventive services. Gone are young people staying on their parents' insurance until age 26. Gone is the health insurance of 20 million Americans. And gone are the life-saving protections for more than 130 million Americans with pre-existing conditions. Today, therefore, I'm calling on President Trump to abandon his lawsuit. Abandon the lawsuit or else. Obamacare stands or else. You're not allowed to go to the court to seek redress about Obamacare, which, by the way, is unconstitutional, always was unconstitutional, and Justice Roberts caved to the pressure didn't want to be seen as somebody for all time that prevented the great Obamacare Act from being law. It was always unconstitutional. We go back to that debate. It was it was stunning. They were willing to change the plain meaning of language. A tax is a penalty, a penalty is a tax, and you can regulate inactivity. It was always unconstitutional. This is this would be like, you know, the, the federal government passing a law that everybody and some of you are going to say, yes. But everybody has to own an AR-15 and, and have a Bible in every room in the house or else we'll hit you with a, an IRS penalty. You have to do these things. You have to buy these products and have them on hand or else. Nancy Pelosi, back to our moment here, saying uh, that the president needs to do this. This is by the way, this has nothing to do with legislation. This is just this is just demands. This is hostage. Ta- this is hostage taking to a T. It's exactly what she's doing. And this is why I've been saying Nancy Pelosi is not a decent or ethical person. It's just the truth. She's not a decent or ethical person. So let's all understand that. I saw before it from Nancy Big, the most horrible person in the Congress. And she here is showing us exactly what we are in store for, which is the Democrats are going to try to leverage. They finally have a moment. They've been doing all this process stuff and relying on the media with Russia collusion nonsense the impeachment and all the different mini crises, you know, the, the, the genocide of the Kurds that never happened, the war with Iran that never happened, the emoluments clause. Trump's crazy. You got to remove him uh, with the constitu- usage of constitutional amendment. I mean, th- this whole thing is just nuts. 
Now they have something that's real, though, and they're going to just bludgeon this administration with it at every opportunity. It doesn't matter what the cost of people uh, people are. On the one hand, you have Democrats who claim to be the ones that are all they, they only care about science. Of course, they're the ones that they don't know what a, they can't define for you what a, what a woman is, but they care so much about science. Uh, and you have Nancy Pelosi coming forward with the beginning, the opening salvo of this is about to become nakedly political and very, very, very ugly. And it's going to stay that way for as long as we're dealing with this up to the election. They will not relent. It doesn't matter that people are at risk. It doesn't matter that there's a real possibility here um, that this just completely. Look, it, it could get a lot worse than even I think it'll be. Than, than you know, any of you listening think we just don't know. We just don't know. Um, but that's that's a true hostage taking move from Pelosi. Pull away your challenge in the courts from Obamacare or else we won't do this. Um, it is it is disgusting. And there's also a lot of lies around this. There's a lot of uh, things that are not true, but it's because, as we know, Democrats see this as an opportunity. Here's Lindsey Graham, who Lindsey Graham knows exactly what to say to go on Fox and to have the Fox audience like him. And he sounds good when he's on TV. When it comes to action, though, Lindsey Graham is uh, less reliable, we could say. Uh, but play clip 10, though, because he is saying something correct on this one. Play 10. You see this as an opportunity to do things you couldn't do otherwise. Republicans see this as an opportunity to do things that have to be done now to save lives. I have never been more disgusted since Kavanaugh. I think that's true. This is the ugliest thing you've you've seen in Congress since Kavanaugh. And this, let's let's be clear, probably has, well, depends on on what uh, ends up happening here. But it could have the, the stakes, in a sense, are higher than with Kavanaugh. But I do think they're going to pass a bill. Maybe by the time you hear this, they'll even have, have passed some kind of rescue bill. But it's likely Pelosi will get a lot of the little goodies that she sought. So she she actually gets what she wants in this process. And once again, we see the Democrats act in bad faith and are rewarded. The Democrats are the side of acting in bad faith, doing things that any any fair minded person would say are gross and wrong. That is what the Democrats do. And once again, that's that's their approach in this. So it's troubling to be sure. Um, But the things that they can't normally get, that's really what they're going. They want same day registration. They, They want to change voting laws. They want to make sure that they can do things that help them win elections. That's what they're holding this stuff up for. That's what they're making these determinations uh, with that with that in mind. And they're ramming a political agenda down the throats of the American people that they know they couldn't normally get done in ordinary times. So they are absolutely exploiting this this crisis. And then there's also this this brainless line of attack against the Republicans that that the corporate bailout is this is, you know, cronyism, corporatism. No, no, you know, we shouldn't have a bailout for the airline industry, shouldn't have a bailout for the hotel industry, shouldn't have a bailout for Boeing. This is not a normal bailout. This is not that these companies acted poorly, made bad decisions and should suffer the economic consequences. This is the country has been hit with a pandemic virus and the government is mandating that they cease operations. But while they've ceased operations, they continue to carry expenses. What is the single biggest expense that most businesses almost all businesses have anyone want to answer that little trivia question personnel payroll staff that's the most expensive thing that most not all but most businesses deal with 
right? Paying their people. You know, this is why when you hear things, I mean, Biden gave a press conference yesterday and it's an embarrassment. I mean, Biden, he look, look confused as he tends to. Why is he holding a press? He has no power. He has no authority. He's acting like if he were in charge, this is what he would. It, it was the reason you're not seeing more about it is just from an objective optics point of view. It was weak. It was weak sauce. You're like, what is this all about? Um, but here is here's a talking point that that Biden said that you'll hear from a lot of other people. Play 18. President Trump and Mitch McConnell are trying to put a corporate bailout ahead of millions of families. You know, it's families. It's simply wrong. We should be focusing on families. The White House and the United States Senate Republicans have proposed a $500 billion slush fund for corporations with almost no conditions. And you don't have to tell Americans where it's going to go for months. You don't have to explain what you did with it. The Trump administration could allow money to, for stock buybacks, for executive pay. Republicans, Republicans refuse to increase Social Security at the same time, to forgive student loans, to take the necessary steps to stop evictions, ensure food and nutrition for vulnerable families. Senator McConnell should immediately allow a bipartisan vote on aggressive measures to help small businesses, workers, communities so they reflect what they need and they can get moving so we can help them now this was all negotiated with the democrats all along the corporate slush fund that he's talking about here which is the same exact same talking point the slush fund the 500 billion dollar slush fund would allow businesses to stay in operation what do businesses do they employ people and if they have uh, too many restrictions in place for what they do with the money, then they can just refuse to accept the money. And you know what they'll do to cut costs? What's the first thing they'll do in most businesses when they have to cut costs? Let people go. So wh- wh- who do they think? Who do they think employs individuals? You know, you're really seeing this divide between government bureaucrats, uh, people that work in the information economy, journalists, podcasters. You know, the, the people that are able to work from home pretty easily. And they're very dismissive. You know, so what if this is a lockdown for a while? So what if people are losing? We'll make them whole. We'll bring back their business. We'll bring or, or not. You know, they don't really care. But they're very dismissive about all of this. As if the country isn't in a completely uncharted waters here of an economic shutdown. That's going to mean that there are people who don't have money for essentials right now. They don't have it. And they also want to be able to get a paycheck from their employer. How long do we think we're going to be able to sustain people with checks from the government if we have millions and millions of people who are eliminated from their jobs? The more to the point, the Democrats were agreeing to all of the provisions all along. And then all of a sudden, Pelosi came in with a talking point with the usual class warfare claptrap. And here's what you hear. Here's Pelosi saying the same thing that Biden said. Play 20. We can say it when we have a deal, and uh, that that could be imminent in a number of hours. I can say uh, that we're all receptive to getting something done. We all know that everybody doesn't get, write their own bill, that it's, it's a 
a series of compromises and that uh, we think the bill has moved sufficiently to the side of workers with the respect. With, we actually are talking to the employers about what they think the traffic will bear and the rest. So this isn't a conversation with workers and not with the airlines or other industries, right. hospitality, parking, you name it. You go to restaurants, you go down the list and, and trying to, to be uh, discreet, discreetly trying to address their problems. So it is not a one-sided conversation on our part. However, things like a $500 billion slush fund was really insulting. $500 billion slush fund, there you go. Um, you know what's insulting? Nancy Pelosi's bill demanding corporate board diversity, in- board diversity increases, uh, college debt relief, election auditing, same-day voter registration, airlines offsetting their carbon emissions. As Ted Cruz said, what the heck do windmills have to do with any of this right now? Trump should make her answer for this. If I were President Trump, I would go on TV and I would just read off some of the most onerous provisions in this that Nancy Pelosi came forth. Because people, even if they get a deal in the next day to who knows, but people should know. They should know the truth about what a reckless maniac Nancy Pelosi is willing to be at this point in time in her relentless lust for power and control. And that point about the Democrats trying to get more now than they normally could. Remember that because that's not going to stop. There is an increasing chorus. You can hear people now on the left and some of them, by the way, from the broader. There's this intersection of the uh, scientific and policy communities where people have some science background, but they're really more policy advisors. And they see this as a means of instituting a lot of what we would consider in normal times to be statism and keeping it for the long term. Uh, Be cautious of this. They're going to start coming after individual rights and liberties in the name of protecting us. Just like they did after 9-11, by the way, with terrorism, that was and that was a Republican administration. And it happened. There were things that went on there that should not have gone on after 9-11. And that in retrospect, people that are honest on the right have said this was excessive. This was too much. We shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't have done that. I'm not saying everything. I think overall, the Bush administration was acting in good faith on this stuff. But there were certainly excesses. And that was a Republican administration with a very clear and defined. Well, I should say it a very clearly human enemy, at least. I mean, now we're dealing with a virus. So the Democrats, if they can get their way, would go absolutely for as much control as they possibly can. And that's what this legislation is all about. But also you're hearing more noise about this in the policy community, um, in the in the medical policy community. And keep in mind that, you know, you could have in 12 months time a Democrat administration come into power. And that's really the hope. So there's a, there's a, an attempt now to push for things that one, Nancy Pelosi is going to get what she can in the meantime, while the, while the Democrats don't have control of the Senate. And it looks like they waited until some senators had to self-quarantine before they decided to bail on this. Republican senators, really sleazy stuff from the Democrats. Um, but they're also trying to push narratives now for what they're going to do in 12 months. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. One thing that I know is just anecdotal, but I do find it uh, I find it troubling about the future of small businesses and what's going on here. You know, in New York, we have probably the greatest I think it is the greatest concentration of food delivery options anywhere. It's something that New Yorkers pride themselves on. It's true. I mean, you can 
on a, in normal times, I could sit here, you give me a cuisine and I can get it delivered to my apartment in 30 minutes. Any cuisine you can think of, anything. And we've been told that restaurants will stay open for carryout and, uh, and delivery. They're dropping every day more and more, more and more places, even that have takeout and delivery businesses and longstanding ones shutting down. They need in-house dining to justify the costs of operation. They're shutting down every day. I'm seeing it in, as it's happening. It's like watching the erosion of the restaurant industry, the small businesses, bars, obviously, same thing. They're just slowly but surely every day dropping off. That's, for me, a, a symbol of what is happening across the country to small businesses right now. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Senate and the House, we seem to be getting along as much as you can get along. We seem to be getting along now on a on a bill. I, I think that maybe had even less of an impact than the fact that we're opening up this incredible country because we have to do that. I'd love to have it open by Easter. Okay, I would oh, love wow. to have it open okay. by Easter. I will I will tell you that right now. I would love to have that. It's such an important day for other reasons, but I'll make it an important day for this too. I would love to have the country opened up and uh, just raring to go by Easter. That was from the president's uh, virtual town hall this afternoon. So some sense of what timeline he's thinking about. And this is what we're asking for. And this is what people like me have been suggesting. All right, let's get a sense of when when do we start opening back up for business? He's saying more or less three weeks. He's thinking we might be able to start opening it back up for business. Now, if we do that, there is a chance that there will be additional infections. That is the moment you open up, you are accepting additional risk from wherever you had been. That's just a fact. But the president's finally giving us a sense of where it is. The president's telling us that that's what the timeline is that we're working with. And so, you know, we'll see if we can stay on that. But he has an understanding of what's really what's at stake here from from all angles and wants to make sure that the country is back up and and running as much as it can be while still protecting seniors, while still taking the necessary steps to help people uh, who are in need. And so that's, I think, a. This is an encouraging sign that the president of the United States feels the way he does about this, that we might be able to get out and do more. And I think I think that's probably a realistic timeline. I think that that it's going to be painful. Three weeks of this is painful. But all right, that's where we think it'll be. And keep in mind, if we wanted if we wanted to make sure that we had, you know, the bare minimum risk, we would just say, no, let's six, six months of lockdown. So the people that just say this is about, you know, death or profits are being are being imbeciles because there there are there are balances here. There are trade offs that need to be struck. All right. Uh, Governor Cuomo also starting to sound a bit more like President Trump on some of this. Uh, Producer Mark, play clip 13 about the economy, right? Uh, The economy was doing well. The economy is now truly suffering. 
the consequences haven't even been felt yet because not only have you stopped the revenue machine, you've increased the expense machine, okay? So those two things are going to compound each other. So the president is very eager to get back to the economy. Everybody agrees that this is an unsustainable situation. You can't keep spending money and close down the economy. Uh, and the president is eager to get it opened as quickly as possible. I actually have a group that is working on the restart of the economy because I get it too. I mean, this is New York and we're, we're the home of so much of this. Yeah. There you have a Democrat governor of the state hardest hit by this saying it's not sustainable. Can't keep doing this. Okay, good. That's progress because there have been people saying, oh, you know, six months, whatever. Lives matter. Profits don't matter. You know, there's this kind of uh, chanting idiocy that has taken over from Democrats who view this as another because Trump is talking about opening the economy. So they say, oh, that must be bad. We don't want Trump to open the economy, you know, uh, because people are going to people are going to die if he does that. Well, OK, but what does that mean? Then we're just not going to open the economy for how many months? And what, what is the loss that you're willing to incur and the loss of, of human life, the loss of of a future? Right. So unsustainable means unsustainable. That means we're going to have to stop this at some point. We're going to have to make a decision that it's more important to get economic activity going than to keep all of the precautions currently in place the extreme quarantines the you know the social the shutdown of businesses those are the ones that really you know once people can go back to work then we can start to phase in the changes to social distancing that's when that's when all of a sudden we have to look at that and make determinations you know when do we get to have you know people in a restaurant again when do you get to sit in a cafe again i mean that's that's probably a few months away Right. That's the reality of, of our situation. But people going into an office, maybe having masks, maybe having gloves, maybe doing some of these other mitigation measures, but being able to conduct their business and being able to start to bring in income and revenue. Th that has to be a part of this conversation, too. And people that try to shut that down with no, they, they just don't know what they're talking about. They're not being honest about this. I did see some. Uh, interesting stuff today in the in the Cuomo. Remember, I'm not just talking about New York because I'm in New York. This is now the biggest the biggest hot spot for coronavirus infections. Uh, this is the hot zone. And we need to find everything we can, every way we can to try and, and deal with this, because the governor was pointing out that this will this will move to other places. There will be other states, other cities that are in the same situation that New York is in right now. And so what happens in New York is a harbinger of things to come everywhere else. It's going to happen in D.C. It's going to happen in L.A. And he's also saying that we need that the big shortfall right now is for the ventilators for people. And we're going to need more ventilators. And he says that the federal government has not taken the most aggressive action they can to get ventilators not only made uh, as quickly as possible, but also distributed to New York. He said FEMA is going to send, I think, three or four hundred. They need thirty thousand. So where are these ventilators going to come from? New York needs them more than anywhere else. He's saying that we need to have a distribution mechanism in place for how we get the ventilators to places hardest hit. So we're going to move around ventilators as this sweeps across the country. And he even said that he's willing to assign medical personnel from New York elsewhere to help them surge up their capacity in order to be able to mitigate loss of life from this as as we go forward and yeah um 
that's going to be really important. It's going to be really important to find ways to distribute these ventilators so that the places that are hardest hit get them because remember that is a race against time. Someone needs a ventilator. When they go into the hospital and they need a ventilator, they need it right away. And if they don't have those machines, if they are overwhelmed, and this is what the whole uh, crisis uh, modeling scenario has taken into account, if they get overwhelmed, then you have people who will die waiting for a ventilator. And you could have thousands of people die waiting for ventilators. So Cuomo is saying that the, the government isn't as aggressive as it should have been and isn't and, and that they're not sending the ventilators that are necessary to New York to New York, including Re, you know, taking them from other places around the country, move them to New York with the promise that they'll be moved back. Um, you know, this this we've never seen this before with states in this kind of scenario where critically needed medical resources are having to be reorganized and redistributed among states. And some states may say, you know, sorry, we got to hold on to ours for our residents. We don't really think of federalism ever playing out in such a, a serious you know, medical situation like this, but that's what is going that that is what is going on right now. Uh, so we'll we'll end up seeing, I think, the surge in New York. They're saying it's coming faster than was anticipated. Twenty one. Uh, sorry, 14 to 21 days, they think, before they'll hit the absolute spike. So within two weeks, we could see the, the largest spike in cases in New York. And if it is within two weeks that we see this, we need to make sure that that's when we have the maximum number of ventilators, beds, and personnel to tend to people in those beds as possible. They think they're going to need 130,000 beds. That's a lot of hospital beds. Uh, they think they're going to need 30,000 more ventilators than they currently have. That's a lot. I mean, this, they're, they're getting ready for these hospitals to be completely inundated with patients with COVID-19. So we'll see if we can uh, band together and do everything possible. You know, Ford... Um, Tesla, other major companies are saying they're now in the ventilator creation business. Uh, we certainly need more of that. And we need that volunteerism to uh, accelerate. And hopefully the federal government has an answer. I want to know what the answer is to why aren't they using the Defense Production Act to tell companies, we're giving you a check, start making ventilators. Why aren't they doing that? Are they doing that? If they're not, I, I would like to know why. So hopefully we'll get some answers to that. Um, but this is uh, it is crunch time for New York. And as New York goes, we'll see what ends up happening for the rest of the country, uh, because the spread of this thing is happening as fast, if not faster than was anticipated in the modeling two weeks ago. So so far, the numbers indicate that the experts on the spread of this, at least in terms of how fast it spreads and how many positives uh, they're getting from this increase in increase in testing. Uh, the spread of this is very, very rapid and has been very, very rapid in the last few weeks. So New York, we are uh, getting ready for battle here. And I'll be updating you on every every day as we go through it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Well, producer Mark, now that we can talk to you across the uh, river in New Jersey, how are things going over there? Uh, well, my butt hurts. That's my biggest complaint. I don't really have a comfortable chair to do work in. Oh. I may well, or may not have ordered an office chair off of Amazon. That's probably a good move. Yeah. I would have given you some recommendations. I'm all about comfy office chairs. Uh, mine was the uh, quickest that I could possibly get it. I didn't really care how comfortable yeah. it was. I, I was never a fan of, you know, the, they for a while they had those very expensive Herman Miller chairs. Sure. You talking like this. I always thought those were uncomfortable. I like I like fabric on my seat, you know? 
I just like a lot of chair. cushioning. Yeah, I like cushioning. Got to have some cushion for the for the tush. Hmm. You know, it's important. So I'm sorry your butt hurts. Other than that, though, New Jersey, you guys are in a lockdown state, too, right? We are. It's pretty much New York, New Jersey and Connecticut are all the same right now. I think Pennsylvania, too. I think hmm. they've added them. They've added them into the mix. How are you feeling about this whole thing? You, you sit there while I do the show every day for hours. You know, do you think that you think that we're going to pull through OK? Or are you are you particularly worried? Yeah, I mean, we're Americans. We always pull through. You know, obviously, everyone's comparing this to 9-11. I think it's a much different circumstance because you don't know when this is going to end. There's no you know date that, you know, OK, we're going back to work this date. So I know there's a lot of questions there. So I'm a little worried about that. But other than that, you know, I know we'll be fine. It's just a matter of when. See, everybody, producer Mark, even producer Mark, an optimist that we'll get through this and we'll, we'll be all right. I'm not always um, grumpy. Yeah, yeah, but what's, so what's the, uh, the, the producer Mark plan? What, what is the first thing I want to ask you is the first thing you want to do when they lessen the restrictions a little bit? If there's one place where you can go that you currently can't go, do you know what it would be? Is I mean, it like one restaurant you'd want to go to right away or there one you want to go to the movies right away? What's the... I just want to see sports again. I really miss sports. So that's Baseball's for you. supposed you, you to open in two days, yeah. Why haven't they? I was sort of surprised that they didn't uh, just decide. Or maybe they're doing this because I don't watch much of professional sports, but why wouldn't they run previous seasons and kind of like best ofs in place of, you know what I mean? I mean, they, they are, but like I already know who won those games. I'm not like the type of person who can go watch old games. Oh, you need, to, you need the uncertainty yeah. of, of the struggle. That's to, what's to great make. about sports is you don't know how it's going to end. That is that is true, and that that is uh, not the case. Although I feel like if they watch some of the old school, like Bird versus Johnson back in the day, you know, you wouldn't know who's going to win those games. No, but I could easily Google it. So yeah, but you're not going to do that. It, it doesn't interest me. Like I'll watch yeah. highlights, fine, but you know. By the way, you know, there's been a there's been a big uh, increase in people buying dogs because dogs are great company during quarantine. Well, actually, people are fostering dogs. That's, they're in the shelters, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's what I get, get. I should have said getting dogs, getting loyal canine companions. Do you ever think about doing that? I have, but it's very expensive in this apartment building that I'm in. So, yeah, you know, I, I want to make sure oh, I have money to feed myself. That's important. Huh. First, we need, we need food coming in to feed ourselves, and then we need to make sure that there's food to take care of our canine friends. I, I actually made chicken for the dog last night because she won't eat, uh, she won't eat normal dog food. I think the dog eats better than you. I think the dog does eat. It definitely eats healthier than me because, you know, I'm like, eh, I'm tired. I'm going to eat some ice cream or something, you know. Yeah. I do. I, I said before, Corona Bod. It's not going to be Corona Bod. It's Quarantine Bod. This is going to be the fight. Trying to avoid just months of indoor, very little activity. And really, what do you, you have? You got things to watch on screens and food. This is an experiment. I really do think, you know, the freshman 15, I think there's going to be the Quarantine 15. I'm afraid it's going to be like the Quarantine 50. It depends on how long this lasts. Yeah. But there's no way. I mean, that's going to be uh, on the one end. I'll be so I'll be so unbelievably happy the day we can finally go outside and start to feel a little bit more normal. But man, I'm going to be uh, it's I'm going to miss sweater weather in terms of the belly, you know, but it is what it is. You know, there, we got more important things to worry about right now. That's that's for sure. And I, I am going to work on some of my skills, though. I've decided I work on some of the of the cooking. Uh, I have been saying I want to do a history podcast. So that, you know, we'll see, Producer Mark, if you have the time to help with a little bit of the editing of the history podcast. So. I mean, do I really have a choice? Probably not. Yeah. I think, I think we're just going to assign, assign you some editing responsibilities on that one. But the good news is it'll give you something to do while, while the time is passing. So That's you know, true. So. I have plenty of free time, Buck. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, look, uh, we're living in this loop all day of just talking about and, and covering the pandemic and all the things that are going on right now. We did have our buddy Sean Parnell wanting to join us today, but our, our tech uh, limitations are such that it's difficult to bring in third guests right now. I did want to know, though, what is it going to take for us to get I'm putting you on the spot, producer Mark. What's it going to take for us to get a an online voicemail box where people can call in for the show? I mean, I, I have just, to I have to research it and, you know, talk to our engineers. But, you know, they're very busy and I'm very busy and we're trying to figure right, out. But I'm saying I'll just pull out a credit card. because I think there's like I think their service is like $15 a month. So, you know, I mean, we, can, so we can do it, Buck. It's just, you know, right now it might not be feasible. Wait for us to get back into a studio is what I'm well, saying. I'm just saying, you know, the people would like to be able to have Mark actually hear their voices. Yeah. You know, people would like to give producer Mark more work. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. But, you know, they want producer Buck. I mean, producer Buck. They want uh, whatever we call me to do more work, too. So, you know, that's that's the other part of it, too, the history podcast. Do you know the story of the Siege of Malta? I don't. Ah, so that'll be a fun I'm sure I'm about to learn it, Buck. Oh, you are. It's going to be a whole thing that we get with producer Mark. So we'll, we'll have to see. But I uh, know everybody, I, I do appreciate uh, all the, the messages and the write-ins that you've been doing. And I'm, I'm really hoping that... Uh, we can we can open up some new and I'm, I'm just giving Mark a hard time because we're we're constantly scrambling just to make sure that we can even keep the show on air uh, with what's been going on. We've been in flux. I, I do give us a little bit of a pat on the back. I know there again, there's more important things in life than just keeping your job going. Uh, but we've been able to with a constant, constant switches of studio and tech and you know obligations. We've been able to keep this thing going. And it's because uh uh, we both don't tell Mark I'm telling you, but he loves his job, too. So we both actually like what we do, which is an important thing, because otherwise these days it's like work, food, Netflix. And I'm pretty sure that they're actually slowing down Netflix a little bit now for the because for the, you can tell the, the pixels are not as clear. I think that they I think that's just because everyone's using it at the same that, time. That, well, that's what I mean. But I think that now you're, you can't even get your if you're used to watching Netflix in HD. Can't even get it right now. By the way, does watch. all the Netflix explain why you can be late to your own living room? Yeah, of course. Okay. I was just wondering. Because it's, it's my show. Yeah. <laughs> so I show, I am the show, Mark. It starts when I show up. I keep telling him this. He doesn't think that this is the way it works. I keep telling him this is the way they I just never thought somebody, a human being could be late to their living room. Mark, when you do six, eight, ten hours of prep every day for a show you love this much... It means that sometimes you run a little bit behind schedule. Sure. Did they rush Michelangelo? Did they tell Da wow. Vinci no brush? Wow. <laughs> Good times. By the way, I, I finished. Uh, some of you have picked up that, by the way, is a tick of mine. So I'll try to say that less. Uh, I finished um, The Boys uh, on, on Amazon Prime, which, as uh, my friend Jesse Kelly pointed out when I brought it up on our Facebook live stream, uh, is not for kids. It is not. It is really even I was kind of like, whoa, at a few scenes, it's. Very, there's a lot of uh, intense graphic violence and, and sexual stuff going on. That all said, if you're like okay with the Game of Thrones level of those things, The Boys was pretty good. I do recommend. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, roll call time for everybody, which is the best time, the roll call time. Thank you very much for being able to uh, keep us company here as we continue the Freedom Hut extravaganza despite the tough, tough times and all the 
all the things that are going on right now. Look, it's stressful, but the good news is that I still get to do this show and talk to all of you folks across the country every day, and I uh, greatly appreciate it. So um, I just wanted to say uh, thank you all for continuing to stay with us. And also, it really is a wonderful time to uh, spread the sh- to pass the buck, to spread word about the show. People are home. They don't have stuff to do. I think that we do a very good job here of being uh, being fair, um, passing along the necessary information, not steering away from the difficult conversations about what's going on, but also maintaining some optimism and some some hopefulness throughout. And we are going to be okay. I keep telling you that we're all going to be fine. You know, I'm going to owe Mark a very fancy steak and uh, a lot of scotch or margaritas or whatever of his choice when finally they lift all these all these uh, circumstances we're currently under because we've beaten this thing. Um, So please do pass the buck. Uh, We'd love to have as many people as possible joining us anew uh, for the podcast every day. Remember, it's up if you're even listening on terrestrial stations across the country. It's up on the Apple podcast store. You can listen on Spotify. You can listen on the iHeart radio app, uh, which also lets you listen to stations live, by the way. So wherever you are, you can do that. As long as you have your smartphone with you or your computer, you can listen to the iHeart radio. Um, and uh, also wanted to say thanks to San Diego's talk station AM760. They're going to be putting the Buck Sexton show on. They already are putting the Buck Sexton show on weekdays, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific time. I'm so excited to be on in San Diego. It's a wonderful city. I love every time I've been there. I've been there a bunch of times in recent years. And I've got a great uh, lead in with Mike Slater. And it's just uh, and I'll do my very best to make sure I hand over the largest possible audience to Mark Levin there. Uh, So, yeah, I'm really, um, really excited about this. San Diego's talk AM 760, a great station with a fantastic, loyal and large audience. Uh, It's just it's a really wonderful addition to the uh, Team Buck family of stations here. So thank you to uh, AM 760 in San Diego. Now, let's get to uh, all of the latest in the roll call. John, uh, I'm of Chinese descent, and it irritates me to no end that people are saying it's so racist to call call it the Chinese virus. It comes from China, started with the Chinese people, so it's the Chinese virus. I do think it would be good to clarify it's nothing against the people as a whole, especially Chinese Americans. There's a reason why we're here and not China, and most of us bleed red, white, and blue. We do, however, need to quit eating bats that's nasty uh well in fact don't we actually uh, we have a, a cut producer mark of trump speaking about this issue uh would you play that for me please it's very important that we totally protect our asian american community in the united states and all around the world they're amazing people and the spreading of the virus is not their fault in any way shape or form They're working closely with us to get rid of it. We will prevail together. It's very important. So um, the president giving some some needed uh, needed words there, I think, about how well, what we all know to be the case that there's there's absolutely no basis whatsoever for uh, treating any person of Asian descent and and, and Asian Americans uh, as it's just it's so stupid as to defy belief that anybody would view it that way. But there's and there's an enormous difference between criticizing the Chinese Communist Party and saying saying anyone who is either from China or has family from China is somehow part of the problem. This is this is like 
but I'm, you know, the president said it, and it's it's good to hear that he knows that we do love our Asian American brothers and sisters, and that no one should, you know, act with the really unfathomable stupidity of of holding any of this against them uh, in any way. So thank you, John, as somebody who is of Chinese descent. Appreciate you writing in and sharing your perspective on this. Uh, Daniel Buck, greetings from South Central PA and your affiliate 910 WSBA out of York. All right. I like you guys, by the way, when you write in, you can always give me if you want. We love it when you give us our affiliate station in your in the, uh, you know, in the notes so we can give them a little shout out because we really appreciate the 160 stations we're on, you know, and growing. And so it's nice to give them a little bit of a of a high five. Uh, I convinced my boss to play your podcast in the truck during our long drives to job sites uh, back a couple months ago, and he's hooked. He's now considered the work truck Mobile Freedom Hut 2 as we listen to your show and debate the current events of the day. Today is the last day we can work as the governor has ordered all non-life-sustaining businesses to close temporarily. Grocery stores are out of bread, canned goods, and, of course, toilet paper. Most people we've talked to are pretty calm about it, just getting ready to hunker down for a while. Stay safe, man. We love the show. We'll continue to listen for from our homes as long as you're on shields high well thank you so much uh i really appreciate it daniel and thank you for passing the buck it is so helpful to our show it means so much to me and you know the incredible growth we've seen in digital listening to this show in particular over the last six months is because you those of you who are on team buck who listen when you get the opportunity you say hey if if you're especially folks if you know anyone who's like i listen to podcasts you gotta say listen to the buck section show that's what I, you know, because those are people that are already listening to podcasts. So give this guy a try. That's enormously helpful. Uh, Glenn. Hey, Buck, love the show. In these times, it's nice to get a level headed view of the situation. I know our economy is taking a hit, but I haven't heard anyone saying how this is affecting China's economy, which is already in a bad situation. Has this made it worse or better? Also, they say people with a compromised immune system are at greater risk. Does that include those of us with seasonal allergies? Great show as always. Shields high. All right, Glenn, great question. A few things here. One, uh, as for China's economy, keep in mind that even well before this crisis, it was considered really people pretty much always had thought that uh, China lies about critical aspects of its economy, that China is dishonest about its growth rate. And so to get real numbers out of remember China expelled I haven't talked about this in the show they've expelled US journalists from the New York Times the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. So there's a clear effort underway in China to um, find a means of making a narrative that they want and suppressing information that they don't want. That's happening in really profound and disturbing ways. So I don't know how much is, I mean, obviously it's hurting China's economy dramatically. I don't think I could give any numbers to it. I don't think anybody has the numbers on that. So we shall have to see. As for compromised immune systems and seasonal allergies, this is beyond my amateur medical knowledge. I don't know. I, I, would, I would guess it might depend on the severe, severity of the allergy, but that's definitely something worth talking to a healthcare provider. You know, speak to an MD about that one. I just, I just don't know. Look, I've, I've had concerns. I mean, I have an autoimmune disease called celiac disease. Now, you might say, well, you know, don't eat, don't eat gluten and you're fine. Yeah, but it means that, you know, you, have a comp- you do have a compromised immune system, and especially if you're eating gluten. But in general, you know, your immune system is not fantastic. So I, I, I've got concerns about that, too. I think, 
you know, you start to look at the list of sure, there's some that we all are aware of uh, as higher risk indicators, but you know, there it's people are concerned about vaping, for example, with this, which I'm I'm even a little bit surprised that that might be something that's a higher risk indicator if you get uh, COVID nineteen, but there are reports out there saying that, so we don't really know. Joseph writes, Buck, I just want to say a big thanks to you for your shout out to truckers and other service workers staying after it during the pandemic. It means a lot. uh, Praying for you and producer Mark staying safe in the big city. Thank you for staying after it as well. I'm a relatively new regular listener, but I've always been aware of you for quite a few years now. I've been passing the buck to everyone I possibly can, especially since more people are more cooped up right now trying to find things to do. Aside from catching the show on my route, I've started downloading the podcast as well. Joseph. Joseph, that's awesome. Thank you so much for, first of all, what you're doing and for making sure that there's, you know, you are, you and your brother and sister truckers, truck drivers across the country, you are the reason that we still have, you know, milk and bread and meat and vegetables and things in the store. If you all decided to stop doing your jobs, we would be, and then we'd be in a, then we would be in a panic situation. Then things do get really Mad Max and really scary. You know, and that's true of a whole bunch. It's true of medical providers now too. Doctors and nurses saying, look, we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up to the cabin and, you know, wait this out. Sorry. No, they're putting themselves at risk for the rest of us. And so it really is a, a heartfelt thank you. And it's a serious, uh, serious praise and, and respect that we have to give to the, the courage of those who continue on in these roles. Uh, you know, I'm the first. I, I've done some things in my life professionally that were that required some degree of courage. Um, you know, phys- physical risks and things like that. Uh, right now, I mean, I'm just. I'm, I'm in that lucky, uh, lucky cohort where I get to continue my job. I mean, I am in the highest risk place in the country, so there's that. But I get to continue my job um, at home, largely. But really, the job is now entirely at home. Whereas for many of the rest of you, I know it means you have to still show up, go out there into the virus red zone, and keep on doing what you're doing. And I thank you for that. And it is meaningful to a lot of us. And we do appreciate it. Tracy, Buck, I'm especially enjoying hearing about Tallulah and your video with her the other day was adorable. We had a cream-colored Frenchie until a few years ago named Winston. He recently accepted a nearly two-year-old Frenchie, or we recently accepted a nearly two-year-old Frenchie into our lives. Hamilton has taken over in true Frenchie style. He is stubborn and always gets his way, but he makes up for it with lots of love. It takes a certain kind of person to appreciate how easy and difficult it is to have a Frenchie. Well, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Tracy. I I do appreciate that. And, you know, this is my parents' dog, really. We think of it as a family dog, but Tallulah is a white French bulldog. She is absolutely adorable. She is a love bunny. She is the sweetest little animal you could ever imagine. But, man, is she stubborn and difficult in some ways. It's all with love, but, you know, she will demand. She woke me up at 4 o'clock in the morning last night because the door had, had gone pretty close to shut. She scratches at the door. And I have to open the door. It's 4 a.m. I was asleep. I scratch at the door. I open the door for her. And I mean, I barely remember this, but I do remember it. I was in sort of a semi-sleep state. And then she's at the bottom of my bed. And she starts whining because even though she can physically jump up onto the bed, she would rather me gently elevate her. I'm like the human elevator for this canine. So I elevate her onto the foot of my bed where she promptly curls up into a ball and falls asleep. Now, she's adorable, so I'm okay with it. But yeah, Frenchies, you're living in their world. It's a loving world, but it's their world. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
All right, more roll call here. Kim, hey, man, you are excellent in talk radio. Love the hair. Got it. Flaunt it. You're my primary weapon against the left. Your truth uh, trumps their invasion of the body snatchers rhetoric every time. Love the banter with producer Mark. The German accent is stellar and hilarious. Shields high. You're a great American treasure. Well, thank you so much, Kim. It's almost like my mom is writing in under a pseudonym named Kim, uh, or pseudonym of Kim. But yeah, uh, no. Mrs. Sexton. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. It's enough settle already. down. You settle down. Some of the people, some of the people appreciate the buck hair. Although I will say this, producer Mark. You know, we do do a video stream of this for Pluto TV channel two forty eight. The first, gotta plug it. Um, but what do I do about the fact I can't get a haircut right now? I mean, this thing is going to get out of control. Yeah. What What are What are your preferred or advised? Uh, options for the Buckster here. Do I go man bun? What do I do? I mean, you might have no choice, so I have a pair of clippers in my house, and my wife just cuts my hair for me because I just get a buzz cut. What do I need to pay some guy $25 to do that for me? But you're in a tricky situation. Yeah, what do I do? I mean, if I take scissors to my own hair... It's, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad news for everybody. I mean, Certainly you're just going to have me. to stick it out. Maybe if you have to man bun, sure. Maybe get a little man scrunchy. Do I go man bun? Oh, my gosh. Borrow a scrunchie from your girlfriend. Do we do man bun or do we do... Yeah, she's got scrunchies. Do we do man bun or do we do uh, ponytail? Oh, Just saying. Do, do you know how pon- to make a man bun? Yeah, I know how to make a man bun. All right. It's easy. You just scrunch your hair up and you do a little rappy thing in the in the middle of it. You wrap it up and uh, and you know then you a look rappy like a, thing. Yeah, you know whatever you call it, a rubber band kind of thing. And then you uh, you look like a samurai warrior or a hipster from Brooklyn that is trying too hard. Depends. I mean, I think that'll look better on you than the ponytail. Yeah, I'm I'm I think I'm more a man bun guy than ponytail guy, but we'll we'll have to sort of see. My, my problem is that the thickness of the swoop, the thickness is the issue more than the length. So this helmet is going to start becoming enormous. It's going to go from looking like a football helmet to like a Martian's helmet, you know, which is giant. So your apartment's going to be like 65% hair soon. That's true. Hmm. That's true. But, you know, we all, we've, all got, we've all got our quarantine issues to tackle. So, all right, let's get to the next one here. Um, Jim writes, uh, hey, Buck and Mark, just want to give you some news that I find scary and couldn't believe my ears. When we were told it, healthcare workers in my hospital system are to reuse their mask for six days. If we wear it into a room of the Wuhan virus patient, we still have to wear it for every other patient we treat. We usually wear it once and throw it away. Shields high. Well, Jim, that's that is troubling. And we got to get masks to people on the front line so that they can get fresh masks. I mean, we can't have people reusing masks. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm sort of I'm just still I'm stunned that we're able to create all the abundance we have in this country and we can't make what do these masks cost 10 cents each we can't churn out a few million of them all at once or not all at once but you know very very rapidly so yeah um i'm with you my friend i'm very i'm very concerned about that too and anybody out there who has the capability of sending masks or making masks or anything like that to first responders please please do that what's up mark it's a major problem in new york i have uh, my sister-in-law is a nurse at nyu She's having to wear a mask for days at a time. My wife is on the front lines of healthcare. She's not a clinical physician or anything, but she has to deal with patients. She has to wear one a day and even more, sometimes have to wear longer. So it's a major problem. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is something that I feel like we should, the American people should be able to come up with a way to make this, make this work, fix this. Um, I, I think that there are some challenges that we understand the complexity of them 
and that the nature of this situation, it, it's not possible to get it all exactly right as we want it to be. Um, obviously, we're facing a viral pandemic. And just the fact that that's the situation we're in means that there have been some some things that we couldn't handle along the way. Um, but face masks, I feel like this is one that we got to be able to, to figure out and, and to cover. Uh, pardon the expression, uh, but figure out how to make this uh, shortfall go away. And we don't have a lot of time. And I do thank all the different companies, individuals out there who are stepping up to do more. Um, that will they will save lives in this process. That is going to happen for sure. So, uh, team, uh, I so appreciate every day that we get to talk, you know, in some ways now more than ever, because uh, it's an important time for the country. And to be able to reach all of you is very meaningful to me uh, behind, you know, pandemic lines here in NYC in particular. So please take care of yourselves. Keep your loved ones close at hand and safe. We will get through this. We will get through this together. Shields high.